Our sermon text for today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Mark six fourteen. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why this miraculous power is at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had, had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and the military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, But what shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and said, And asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Death is Always victory for the believer, and it is never defeat. The enemies of Christianity are not able to see the spiritual reality that surrounds them, so they often believe that the message of Christ can be suppressed if the messengers are killed. But the church is well acquainted with persecution. As the early church father, Tertullian, once said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In no other time does the church grow more than when it is under persecution. One hundred years ago, you would be hard-pressed to find any Christianity in China. But today, as the Chinese Communist Party cracks down on Christianity, the church is growing exponentially. It is estimated that China has over 100 million Christians.
Christians, many of them underground. The more the church is persecuted, the more the church grows. Today, as we turn to our text, we see the martyrdom of the great prophets. John the Baptist. John was Jesus' cousin. The son of Zachariah and Mary, Mary, I'm sorry, the son of Zachariah and Mary's cousin, Elizabeth. Jesus calls him the greatest born of a woman. And in the Bible, he stands as the last of the old covenant prophets. John's function was to prepare the way for Jesus. But now, John's role had come to an end. There are only two stories in the Gospel of Mark that are not directly about the life and work of Jesus Christ. Both of these stories are about his cousin, John the Baptist. The first story is about John's ministry. We saw that back in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. John, in his ministry, proclaimed a baptism of repentance. As he baptized those who came to him to confess their sins in the river Jordan. The second story is our story for today. Not about John's ministry, but about John's death. John stood as a prophetic voice, not just for the people of God, but also a prophetic voice against an immoral culture. In an interesting way, these two stories in the Gospel of Mark about John outline the story of Christ. John, in his ministry, was a forerunner of Christ as he proclaimed the message of repentance and faith, and Christ would then proclaim the same message. But John, in his death, was a forerunner of Christ as, his, as he died as a righteous man in the hand of the ungodly. What we're going to see today is a pattern of faithfulness fulfilled in Christ that we too are called to live by. John stands as a reminder for us today that to die because of the truth is better than to live by lies. Remember that we've talked about marking sandwiches, right? We are actually in the middle of one right now. A marking sandwich is a literary device that Mark uses throughout his gospel where he starts one story, interrupts that story with another story, and then returns to conclude the original story. Remember this. In the story that was sandwiched in the Gospel of Mark just a few weeks ago in chapter 5, we met Jairus, one of the rulers of the synagogue. Jairus had a dying daughter. Jairus asked Jesus to come and heal his daughter. But as Jairus and Jesus made their way to Jairus' house, Jesus is interrupted by a woman with a blood discharge. This woman 
by faith, touched the garments of Jesus, and she was healed. This interrupting story worked as a reminder to Jairus that he needed to overcome fear and hold on to faith as the voices of the world spoke into his ears saying, Jairus, it is too late. Your daughter is dead. Jesus speaks to him. Just as that woman came to me by faith, Jairus, right now you need not fear. Only believe. Jesus went on not only to heal his daughter, but to resuscitate her in power. So today, again, we find ourselves in a Markin sandwich. As we saw in our previous passage, Jesus empowered his own disciples to be an extension of his ministry. His disciples will return in verse 30. But right now, we consider John the Baptist. Just as Jesus was rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, his disciples were to expect rejection as they ministered in the name of Jesus. But how severe would this rejection be? Our story for today tells us. John the Baptist tells us how severe this rejection would be for the disciples. The disciples were to expect to follow Jesus unto their death. Discipleship demands everything. To follow Jesus, we must give up all things. This is true for John the Baptist. This is true for the disciples of Christ. This is true for us. Following Jesus, friend, will cost you everything, even your life. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 16, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So in our story for today, John finds life in light of death. So today as we dive into our text, we're going to pit two men against each other. One that we should reject and another that we should emulate. We're going to consider Herod's false religion. And then we'll consider John's victory in Christ. Let's turn to Herod first. Perhaps you might be a little confused about the names in this story. If you are, welcome to the club. You're not alone. The Herodian dynasty was obsessed with the name Herod. And some variations of it as well. So when we see the name Herod... It might refer to a number of important historical and biblical characters. The King Herod that we meet, that we meet in chapter 14 of, of uh, verse 14 of chapter uh, 6 was also known as Herod Antipas. He was the son of King Herod the Great. 
Herod the Great had three sons, and these three sons divided his kingdom. Herod the Great is the king that we know from the birth narrative of Jesus. You can read more about Herod, this Herod's father, Herod the Great, in Matthew chapter 2. This Herod, in our story, was a governor under the Roman Empire. His official term was a tetrarch, and he was located in the northern part of Judea, where, where Galilee is. So, virtually all of Jesus' ministry thus far has taken place in the region where this Herod ruled. Back in chapter 1, we hear that John had been arrested right before Jesus' ministry begun. His arrest, we learn in our text, was sanctioned by Herod himself. The followers of Herod also opposed Jesus. As we're told in chapter 3, as Jesus declares himself Lord of the Sabbath, the Pharisees and the Herodians held counsel together in order to destroy Jesus. Now, I want you to notice a few things about Herod. We, we may think of Herod as an irreligious man. But our text actually shows us that Herod was very much a religious man. But Herod was a follower of false religion. Herod had a wrong understanding of religion. In verse 14, we hear that Herod himself had heard of Jesus' ministry. This is not surprising. After all, Jesus' ministry was quite public, powerful, filled with the supernatural. He was always followed by the crowds who were astonished at his teaching and at his miracles. Crowd, friends, if one thing is true of crowds is that they talk. Besides, Jesus' disciples were commissioned as missionaries on behalf of Jesus. So the message of Jesus spread through northern Judea like wildfire. <coughs> there was great confusion about the true identity of Christ. We actually see this throughout the entire Gospel of Mark. So far, only God the Father and demons have rightly identified Jesus as the Son of God. In verse 15, we see that some believe Jesus was a prophet like the ones of old. Others identified him directly with the great prophet Elijah. For Herod had his own theories about Jesus. Herod did not see Jesus as God or the Son of God, but believed Jesus to be John the Baptist raised from the dead. Herod's conscience was so heavy, even after his death, John would not leave Herod alone. For here's one of the marks of false religion. 
False religion downplays the nature of Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is the first of God's creation. Mormons believe that Jesus is the spiritual brother of Satan. Muslims believe Jesus to be a prophet. Others call him a good teacher, an apocalyptic preacher, a moral example. But friends, any attempt to make Jesus lower than what the Bible actually speaks of him renders our religion to be false and ineffective. Jesus is God, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. He has existed from eternity past and will exist as Lord. Here's the problem, right, for the unbeliever. As Lord for all eternity. Unbelievers downplayed who Jesus is because if Jesus is not who the Bible says that he is, we don't have to worry about his lordship. But if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, he's Lord. He commands us to obey him and follow his commandments. Herod knew John was righteous and holy. He even feared him, which for some time kept John safe. John's message was perplexing for Herod. But notice the last clause in verse 20. Herod heard John's preaching the gospel gladly. Does that mean Herod was a believer? No. Another mark of false religion is an apparent acceptance of the gospel. A surface deep acceptance of the gospel. An acceptance of the gospel that does not transform, but simply conforms to what we want. Atheist Richard Dawkins once said in an interview to the BBC, I am a cultural Christian in the same way many of my friends call themselves cultural Jews or cultural Muslims. So yes, I like singing carols along with everyone else. I'm not one of those who wants to purge our society of our Christian history. False religion tells you that if you just get a little bit of Jesus in you, if you just get a little bit of the church in you, if you just get a little bit of the Bible, a little sermon, a little bit of good works, and you do these things with gladness, you'll be just fine. False religion, cultural Christianity, is dangerous because it deceives us. It makes us think that we are okay when we are taking steps day after day, merrily towards hell. Herod went to hear John preach. He even heard his messages with gladness, but he didn't believe John, did he? Friends, gladness to participate in religious activities does not necessarily mean one is born again. You can be glad to sing at church, glad to hear the word preached. You may come here to meet with your best friends. You may come to this place regularly. 
you may perform all the religious acts. And yet, your acceptance of the gospel may still be only apparent, only superficial. God speaking to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 33, telling him of how the people would receive Ezekiel himself and his message, says the following, As for you, son of man, that's, that's a designation here, Ezekiel, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses say to one another, each to his brother, Come! And hear what the words is that come from the Lord. And they come to you, and they come to you as people come. And they sit before you as my people. And they hear what you say, but. Here, here is God about to describe false religion. But they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. Did you hear that? Did you hear the gladness of the people to participate in religious functions, but not be transformed by the message of the gospel? The problem is not the people won't hear the message of Ezekiel. The problem is that the people hear his message, but won't act on it. Their mouths are filled with lust and their hearts filled with selfishness and pride. When the gospel meets the regenerate heart, it yields godliness. But when the gospel meets the unregenerate heart, that heart yields immorality. And here is another mark of false religion. False religion is marked by immorality. Herod's life was marked by immorality and sexual deviance. Look at verse 17. The reason why Herod imprisoned John is because John called him out on his immorality. Herod divorced his wife and married his brother's wife, Herodias. John spoke the truth to Herod. This is against the law of God. But Herod favored his lust over the truth. Not only that, we see that Herod lived in an environment of immorality. In verse 21, we hear the retelling of a birthday celebration for him. This was a celebration of the high society of Galilee. Nobles, military commanders, the leading men were all present. These men were entertained by dancers specifically, his guests were entertained by a dancer whom through history we've come to know as Salome. Salome was Herodias' daughter and Herod's stepdaughter. Her dance was said to please Herod and to please his guests to the point that Herod promised to her anything she wanted up to half of his kingdom. Friends, let me assure you, this dance was not the, cup the, cupid, the cupid shuffle or the electric slide. No, this dance was sensual. This dance was designed to elicit lust. 
And in lust, Herod responded. But we must hear the warning from Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Why? Because on account of this, the wrath of God is coming. A clear evidence that the gospel is at work in us is found in the fact that we're constantly and progressively winning the battle against the lust of the flesh. The gladness that Herod displayed when he listened to Don, John did not translate into a transformation in his heart. His heart was enslaved to lust. John himself preached this message, a message of change and repentance. Matthew tells us that earlier in his ministry, and he was baptized in the Jordan. He saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to him in order to be baptized. So he says to them, You brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come? You see the connection with Colossians here? Instead, bear fruit that is keeping with repentance. Friends, this is what we're called to do. The world wants to entrap us in its lust. And we must reject that. Instead, we should live a constant life of faith and repentance. We know that our religion is true if God is leading us to repent and to forsake our sins day in and day out. You know, I'm certain most of you have heard of what is being called the revival in the campus of Asbury University, a small Methodist university in eastern Kentucky. Two weeks ago, they had a chapel service, which is quite common in Christian colleges and universities and seminaries. But what is unique in this chapel service is that as of this morning, it still hasn't ended. It's going on today still. Now, in some ways, this event has become the reason for debates among Christians. Some question if, it is, if this is not just a facade, a show, an outward display of spirituality that is based on emotion and not transformation. Others view this as a genuine revival in line with the great revivals we have seen in the past in America, young people who are feeling the unquenchable desire to worship God. Which one is it? We don't know, do we? We don't know yet which one it is. It's too early to tell. We don't want to deny a true movement of the Spirit, do we? But we don't want to attribute a movement to the Spirit if it's actually from the flesh. Revivals are validated in the rearview mirror and not on the windshield. But here, 
is the true fruit of revival. Repentance. I keep telling everyone who talks about this, wait, wait. If there is true repentance, we will know that this is from the Lord. Whenever the Spirit of God revives people, they come to repentance. Oh, friend, how I hope that this movement is a true revival. How I long to see our youth bowing before our Lord in recognition of their sin and of the grace of God. How I long to see our Methodist brothers and sisters recognize the sexual deviance that has plagued their denomination to a point that not even the Wesley brothers themselves would recognize any vestige of biblical Christianity in most Methodist churches in America today. How I long to see the transformation in this dear denomination that for centuries worked alongside with us to proclaim the gospel of hope and transformation of Christ. But we will know if this revival is true if and only if we see repentance. Repentance that was lacking in our story for today. Even with all the respect and admiration that Herod had for John the Baptist, even though he felt sorry for John the Baptist, he chose to yield to a girl whose dance enticed him. She schemed with her mother, who held a grudge against John the Baptist because he confronted her in her sin. So they asked for John's head on a platter. And Herod, who feared men more than God, complied. And thus, Herod was victorious over John. Or was he? He wasn't. At the end of the story, the one who finds victory is John and not Herod. So let's consider now John's victory in Christ. John may have died in the hands of Herod, but death for John was his victory. The Christian should always be able to say with Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Sometimes it may look like the world is winning the war against the church, but this will never be true. The right side of history is the side of God. The right side of history is the side of God's word. The right side of history is the side of the gospel. The right side of history is the side of the church. Jesus tells Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall never prevail against her. So the fear we see in Herod, we do not see in John. Instead, what we see in John is boldness. What we see in John is commitment. What Herod, while Herod was swayed 
by a little girl, John was unmoved in his confidence in God. We see, first of all, that John was committed to the truth. Truth cannot be jailed. Truth cannot be killed. As we sang this morning, his kingdom is forever. His truth abided still. Truth cannot be restrained. John experienced greater freedom in jail than the herald experienced in his palace. Jesus speaks to believing Jews in John 8. He says, so Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John understood this. John's message was singular. John did not change his message in order to please Herod or to preserve his life. Notice in verse 21, Herod was perplexed with John, and yet John preached the same gospel. John did not try to lift Herod's perplexity. John did not change his message in order to appease Herodias, who held a grudge against him. His message was singular. He was committed to it. Friends, I stand today behind a pulpit that has proclaimed the same message of faith and repentance for 62 years. The reason why this church stands today is not because we are the edgiest around, the hippest around, or the coolest around. No, if you're looking for that, you would have called a different pastor. None of those things can be said of me. The reason why this church stands today is because it is committed to the truth of God's word. But friends, the truth can never be assumed. The truth remains if it is pursued. By nature, we stray. By nature, we drift. We may be one generation that embraces the truth of the gospel, but if we do not teach the truths of the gospel to the next generation to come, they will not believe it. And this church will cease to be. A commitment to the Word of God, which is always changing us and molding us to what will, is what will ensure that this church will stand in this place for generations to come until the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. But John wasn't just committed to the truth. He was committed to a very specific aspect of the truth. John was committed to biblical morality. Friends, one of the main reasons why the world hates us is because the world wants Jesus out of their sex lives. But John fearlessly spoke into Herod's perversion. John was not a gospel preacher who was afraid to confront others in their sin. John's message to Herod is, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife the law that john is referring to here is not just the law of men but the law of god the law of god that is revealed in nature 
and it is also revealed in His Word. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Herod heard the truth with gladness, but suppressed it. May that not be true of us. Then Paul goes on to explain that men and women were led to pursue sexuality in their own way because of the suppressing of the truth. They rejected God's design of sexuality. The sin that Paul uses to demonstrate this rebellion against truth here in Romans 1 is the sin of homosexuality. Why? Because this sin is clearly against nature. Romans 1, 26 and 27, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with their passion for, passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Friends, we live in a time of rebellion against God's standard for sexuality. Romans 1 translates so perfectly to our society today. It is such an accurate description of what is happening around us. According to a Gallup poll, in 1996, only 27% of Americans believed that same-sex couples should have the same rights as traditional couples. Only a little bit over 20 years later, in 2022, the same poll now shows that 71% of Americans should support equality between same-sex marriage and traditional marriage. What happened? How did we change? How did our society become so perverse? We stopped speaking the truth. Because we believe that the truth is not loving. The same goes for all other sins. Divorce rates, fatherless homes, premarital sex, pornography. We live in a hyper-sexualized world and we're quiet. Friends, the truth is that east of Eden, we're all guilty of sexual sin. We must speak into the world, but we must speak knowing that we too, apart from the grace of God, would be condemned in our transgressions and iniquities. We don't speak the truth apart from hope that comes with it. John's message was one of hope. John loved Herod too much to not speak the truth to him. And what is the hope of John's message. The hope of John's message is that even the sexually immoral, the adulterers, the fornicator, the homosexual can repent of their sins and place their hope in Christ. We speak the truth because hope is only hope if it agrees with the truth. I'm not asking you to be keyboard warriors. 
I'm not asking you to be a single message Christian. I'm asking you, yes, to speak the truth to society. But to speak the truth to your children and raise them understanding that God cares about human sexuality. That God cares about how we relate to others. That God cares about the purity of our hearts. That God cares about the purity of our eyes. And if we are going to be the church who speaks the truth to a blind society, we must live that truth first. One last thing I want to point out from John today is that John was committed to God to the point of death. The death of John on the surface is a sad story. So dedicated he was to the ministry. He was humble and bold, and yet he died in his earthly 30s. A violent and gruesome death. The words of Psalm 73 that we heard earlier resonate in our ears. Why does the wicked prosper? Be more committed to the oath he made to those that were in his party. Herod grants the girl her request. He sends an executioner, and in the most anticlimactic way, the life of the great prophet comes to an end. The girl shares her trophy with her mother, the head of John on a platter. They say, now his lips will accuse us no more. His disciples, showing bravery, recover his body so that he can have a proper and dignified burial. And this was the end of John the Baptist's life. John, was it worth it? Was it worth it, John? The life, the harsh life that you lived, you were disliked, rejected, misunderstood, and then you died like this? John, was it worth it believing that Christ is the Messiah? Was it worth it? living your life to highlight his life. And if John could speak to us today, this very morning, he would say yes. It was all worth it. It was worth it to live for Christ. And it was worth it to die for him. Why, John? Why is it worth it to live for Christ and die for him? Tell us, John. Because we're in the middle of this battle. We need to know. The world, the world wants us to live according to them. They want to be our God. Why, John? Why should we live for Christ? Why should we be willing to die for him? And John would tell you. I live for Christ. And I died for him. Because just a few years later. Christ died for me. 
Friends, if Christ had not died, John's death would have been pointless. But because Christ died, John's death was worth it. Christ's death takes away our sin. Christ's death makes repentance possible. Christ's death reconciles us with God. Christ's death gives us purpose in life and confidence in death. Christ died to free us from the condemnation of sin, the slavery to this world. God, who is righteous, should pour out his wrath on us, but Jesus offers his life in our place. He dies the guilty death we should have died. He drinks the cup of wrath from the Father that is reserved for us, and not a drop of that cup is left. John didn't experience one sip from that cup. Jesus paid it all. His sacrifice is complete. His death in our place is sufficient. And if Jesus died for us, death is therefore victory. Not only that, but John was raised from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead. And one, fr one day, friend, we who are in Christ will meet the reason John because G just as Christ was raised from the dead, all who believe in him will also be raised. So John died in this world, but he died with the hope of eternal life in his heart. And I wonder if you have that same hope. I wonder if you have come to know Christ by faith. I wonder if you have confessed your sins to him. Have you abandoned every confidence you have in yourself? Have you trusted in Christ and in him alone friend if death were to call you today would you be able to say that because of christ your death is victory apart from christ your life will have no purpose and your death will be filled with hopelessness but if you come to christ you will find in him the hope the hope of eternal life let's pray Father, thank you for the example of John. Father, thank you for his boldness. Thank you for his clarity. Thank you for his commitment to the truth. Father, most importantly, thank you that John would say to us, it matters that I shrink and that Christ is magnified. Thank you that John, in his death, pointed us to our great Savior and Deliverer, Christ himself. Help us trust in him, both in life and in death. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.